Welcome to The Owl Hoot, a podcast for the environmentally curious, with me, Caroline Norbury. On each episode, I chat with a guest who contributes in some way to protecting the planet on matters of climate change, sustainability, biodiversity and pollution. Here is a place where you can gain new knowledge and be inspired. Enjoy listening. The Peak District and South Pennine Moors in the UK have been described as the most degraded upland habitat in Europe. Thankfully, Moors for the Future Partnership are on the case to restore this valuable landscape. Here to discuss their efforts and explain the background is Robbie Carnegie, their Senior Communications Officer. Robbie has a background in the creative industries covering marketing and editing and has experience in acting, singing and directing. He now puts his talents towards protecting environmentally crucial bogs and peats. Let's find out more as I welcome Robbie to the podcast. Hello. Hi, how are you? I am very well. So thanks for joining me today. Uh, before we get right into it, it would be great to get a bit of an idea as how, I mean, I said in the, in the intro that you've got a sort of creative arts background. How did you become interested in the environment? Well, I mean, I live in the heart of the Peak District. I live in Buxton in the Peak District. And so, and it was somewhere I only came to about 15, 20 years ago. So it was an area that was new to me and the landscape of this area was very new to me as well. So since I've been living here, it's been a gradual sort of learning curve really of getting used to to what's around me getting used to the the hillsides to the moors to the areas around me anyway so i started to develop a bit more of an interest in that over that period just because it was just something that was like oh well it's here but i'm not really making the most of it in some respects and then in 2019 i as you say i'd been working um in in the arts for a, a number of years before that, I was I was working for uh, Buxton Opera House and Buxton Festival, um, sort of for 15 years before before the, 2019, and I sort of I just felt I was needed to do something different. I'd been in the arts for a long time, both sort of both in terms of my sort of professional life and my personal life. And I just felt that I needed a change and it was I was ready for doing something very different. And uh, a friend of mine, actually, who also used to work for for uh, for the Buxton Festival, um, had gone to work for the Peak District National Park and she spotted this job coming up in most of the future partnership. And it was something I really knew nothing about, um, about what their work was, what what was what it was that they did. But I thought, well, so I started to look into it and the more I read about it, the more it interested the more excited I became about it really sort of realizing that we had this sort of resource on our on our doorstep that was that needed protection and I think throughout my career I've always been somebody who sort of likes to get new information myself and, and I think part of communication sometimes is is going into something as a as a layman yourself because it helps to then be able to communicate it to other people who are also laymen. I think sometimes if you start from the point of view of a huge degree of knowledge, it's quite hard to put yourself in the position of somebody who's coming to at it, at it from a from a standpoint of somebody who's new. Whereas in my case, that was very much the case because it was a completely new world to me, really. So yeah, so that's that's how I sort of started. You know, it, it was an immediately a, a very steep learning curve, really, in terms of all the information that I had to absorb, but. But I think in that. But I think it, as the more I've learned, the more I've got into it, the more exciting it's become. Really. 
that so resonates with my own story because of the, doing the podcast. I, I don't tend to have people on that. I know not a lot about the subject before I start. So it's a really, it's really exciting to learn new stuff in, in a way when you're talking to, to people with uh, more expert knowledge than you and also conveying what what the assumptions that perhaps if you know more knowledge about, as you quite rightly say. So yeah. in, t in terms of uh, the actual partnership, then Moors for the Future, what, tell me a bit about the organisation itself. Well, as the name would suggest, it's a partnership organisation. Uh, it comes under the kind of auspices of the Peterson National Park Authority, but it's also a kind of standalone body. Uh, that it's a partnership between various different bodies in themselves. So uh, the National Trust, the RSPB, uh, all the water companies, um, South Pennines Park and various other organizations are all part of this one partnership so it's not one thing there is a staff team that runs most for the future but it's it's its scope is broader than that so we work very closely with with all these other organizations um, which allows us to do work over a kind of what we call a landscape scale so really covering areas from up into North Yorkshire down into Staffordshire so a huge range a huge sort of area that we cover and what is the main sort of mission, the vision of the partnership? What's what? What are they all coming together to do? Yes, we. So what these people, as you say, are all coming together to do is basically to restore the peatlands of the Peak District and the South Pennines, because, as you said in your your introduction, the peatlands in this area, so that's the 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 moorlands on the tops of the hills, basically, um, are the most have been described as one of the most degraded landscapes in Northern Europe. And th this is down to its kind of unique position, really, because of the fact that during the Industrial Revolution, so 150, 200 years ago, all of the major industrial cities of Britain were surrounding this area. So if you can imagine, if you were in the Peak District, you'd have Sheffield on one side, Manchester on the other side, um, Stoke-on-Trent below, Bradford, Leeds, all belching out huge amounts of smoke, um, huge industries that were powering the Industrial Revolution, but also creating huge amounts of pollution. And whichever way the wind blew during that period, it would blow it over the Peak District or the South Pennines. So when the rain fell, it was falling as what we would now understand as acid rain. And over the course of, of that period, really from, from the sort of early 19th century up until the 1950s when the Clean Air Act came in, the sort of heavy metals and the chemicals that were coming down in the rain basically stripped away all the vegetation from the hillsides, leaving it in areas where basically it was just black, dead peat. And we've you know, got pictures that we, we often use in some of our talks and things like that of some of these areas. There's a, particularly, there's an area called Black Hill, which um, is up in the South Pennines. And we have a picture of that from about, I think, the sort of late, late 20th century. And it's literally just peat, dark black peat, as far as the eye can see, with like a trig point in the middle of it. And... That was all that was there. The vegetation had gone. And I think it had been gone for such a long time that I think people had begun to feel that that was all that had ever been there. This is what moors should be like. But it's not what moors should be like. Moors should be healthy, thriving places. And what had happened was they'd become these kind of really kind of dead spaces, really. So the, that, so that was well, the, the importance was realised in 2003 when Moors for the Future Partnership started was to actually try and remedy this in some respect. Um, and this is for a number of reasons as well. I mean, partly, as I say, just because it looks horrible, 
but also i mean there are there are a number of things that we always look at as to why we do the work we do and the first one certainly the one that's most crucial to us nowadays is the idea is carbon because peat in itself is a great store of carbon it takes carbon out of the atmosphere stores it in the peat however when there's no vegetation on the top of it what will then happen is that the peat will get washed away every time it rains or it will get blown away and that just throws the carbon back into the atmosphere again. So what should be having a great store of peat is actually becoming a great a source of peat, a, a source of carbon. So create, you know, sort of exacerbating the issues of climate change that we already have. Whereas if we can keep the peat on the moors where it belongs, stop it being washed away, then it will be holding the peat, holding the carbon there, you know, as a storage for, for um, the fight against climate change. So that's that's the sort of main reason behind it. But also there's other things as well. So um, natural flood management, for example, because bare peat, when rain falls on it, will just wash away and the rain will just run straight off it. So if you've got a heavy rain event in the hills, there's nothing to stop it just flooding straight down into the valleys below. And we've been working quite heavily with certain areas like sort of around Calderdale and places like that, where they've had a lot of problems with, with flooding in recent years in order to try and slow the flow of water from the tops of the hills so that it then will be be less catastrophic when it hits the valleys below and um, we uh, will talk about how we do these things later but so that's the one of the things with that um, also water quality as well because um, when there's bare peat there the reservoirs end up being full of kind of peaty dark water so it's one of the reasons why the water companies work with us is because it helps to clean the water before it reaches the reservoirs at that stage um so those are some of just some of the reasons why we we do the work we do but it's um yeah it's an incredibly um, worthwhile activity really absolutely and there's two things that you highlighted there that really sort of stuck in my mind one of them is our perhaps acceptance of what landscape should look like um, if we've only been used to it looking like a certain way it's like oh okay that's how it should look like and then the enormity really of the fact that it is degraded and the impact on so many different environments, you know, uh, you've got the climate change, you've got uh, this flood management and then the, the water quality. There are so many things that it's obviously they're good for. It's obviously taken a period of time to get in this in this poor state. How then does one come back to trying to remedy this very bleak looking landscape? Mm. Well, it's it's a very uh, labour intensive process, really. I think it's one of those things because it's nature, because you, know, you see it on the hillside, it's easy to think, well, if we kind of leave it alone, it will grow back. Vegetation will come back on its own, but it, it doesn't do that. In fact, we have an area up on Kinder where we've deliberately left an area as a control site to be able to look at that and see, well, does that actually, if we just let it, let it alone, would it grow back? It won't. It just so we've got this area there still, which is just bare peat because we I think there's like one blade of grass in the middle of it or something. Other than that, it's just nothing growing back, and that's what would have happened had we not intervened because because the the, the area is as degraded as it is. So we go through a number of stages really to to in order to to sort out these areas. Uh, and the first thing we do is we'll um, put down a combination of lime um, seed and fertilizer and the lime is there to change the, the acidity of the peat because peat is naturally acidic as a soil but it is um, 
but when it's in the state that it's in because of the chemicals and stuff in it it becomes a lot more acidic so nothing's going to grow on that so the lime's there to help to kind of level that out and make it make it something that's actually um, usable to, as a, something to grow things on and then you've got the seed and the fertilizer there which is sort of starting off what we call nursery crops so they're various grasses and things that will start to grow just to really to bind the the the, uh, the peat together again and start to put some nutrients back into it it's not designed that's not really designed to be the thing that's going to be there forever but just there to sort of help the process and the other thing we do around that stage as well is we put, put down what we call um heather brash so this is cut heather we've taken from one place and then we spread it with, with like pitchforks and things across across these areas of bare peat and that's somebody once described it to me as being a bit like a scab on a wound it's something you put in over the top of the um of, of the degraded area and it just helps the growing process to sort of heal underneath so that's we do that at that stage as well and then when it started to sort of return to some sort of degree of normality that's the point where we do the kind of what's in a sense is the most pivotal part of it which is we plant sphagnum moss and sphagnum moss is absolutely the key to what what we do it's a it's an amazing amazing little plant which it has various qualities which make it ideal for what we do the first of which is it has it, it, it soaks up water it can soak up to about uh, 20 times its own weight in water so you you, you plant that down it's going to help to re-wet the soil below it because as we said before we want the, the the areas on the tops of the moor to stay wet because that's what helps to these things to flourish so we you wanted to keep to stay wet and it also helps to soak up water that would might otherwise be causing flooding further down um, and the other thing that it does is that it it because of the way its roots grow, whereas most most plants have a sort of root system that takes nutrients out of the soil, the the, the roots of the sphagnum basically they degrade from the bottom up, they sort of decompose. So they while it's still growing, it's creating fresh layers of peat as it's going. I mean, it's a very very slow process. I mean, the, the creation of peat takes um, a millimeter a year. So that gives you some perspective of of the, the how slow it is. So you know none of this is going to suddenly reverse the losses that have happened. But what they are going, it is going to do is to stop it continuing to happen. So that's really the thing with that. The other thing with sphagnum is it also has a quality where it's naturally um, has a sort of antiseptic, antibiotic quality to it, which I mean was evidenced by the fact that in the First World War they used to use it as a wound dressing. Um, so if somebody was shot or something, they put sphagnum moss on it, and that would keep the wound clean and stop it, um, you know, becoming infected. So, um, so it's an amazing thing. So that will help in terms of the water quality that we talked about earlier as well. So it covers so many of our areas. We we plant it like in little plug plants, the sort of thing you would get with like with your for your garden, little sort of you know wallflowers and things like that, just like a 50p size plug plant, and our the people who work for us will be up there on the moors with a trowel plant put one in the ground move a meter away put another one in, and so on and so on so as i say it's very labor intensive there's no sort of quick way of doing it. we tried we've tried different ways of planting sphagnum we had we had at one stage we were trying a kind of um, spray green spray stuff that had sphagnum seeds in it. it looked a bit like kind of just slime basically and you could spray that out over things but because it's so kind of windy and, and wet up on the moors it didn't really 
stick in the way that we wanted to. I think it worked probably, probably work in some areas, but for what for our specific area, less so good. So we found that the um, the plug plants were the ideal way of of doing that. But as I say, it's a very labour intensive way. And then the other thing, of course, as well, is that the areas that we're working in are quite remote in some respects so if you're ever out in the peak district during the winter months and you see helicopters flying over with kind of bags of stuff or skips of stuff that will probably be most of the future moving our stuff up onto the moors in order to do the work that we need to do wow that's that's a good that's a good visual of (laughs) flying flying all the needed seeds in yeah that sounds really fascinating the way you're putting in some very sort of time consuming efforts and, and the flourishing mosh. I've really got a visual of how that's coming together. You've, you've described that story very nicely. How on earth did you know where it sounds like a vast area that needs sorting? Where do you start? Well, because of the fact we work in a partnership, some of our partners that we work with, they will have land that they own or that they manage. And so often they will come to us and say, you know, there's this area that's like this. Uh, we have a, a very, um, very flourishing um, monitoring department. So including um, somebody who deals with kind of satellite imagery and stuff like that. So he, you know, with using that sort of stuff, we will help to highlight the areas that need the most work. And then also, and sometimes it goes down to, and so that will be at the large scale, but then we go down to the level of, you know, having an individual who goes on the ground and walks that area and goes, yeah, looking at this, I can see that this needs doing and this needs doing. And you can see the detail at that point of what's of, of what's needed at any particular point. And once you started that process, how long does it take before you can see the fruits of your labour in terms of getting the getting that protective layer on and then putting the, the, the moss in place? When do you start to see it turning around? Yeah, it takes a number of years. I mean, it's a, you know, as I say, it's a slow process. I mean, the sphagnum itself, you know, we watch it develop, but it's usually about two to three years before you really start to see it. Well, you know, it'll go from like a, a, you know, 50p size up to a plate. And then gradually the idea is all of the, the, all of the ones we put down will become one big carpet, but it'll take a number of years to reach that point. In terms of the sort of shorter term stuff, in terms of the, um, the grasses and things like that, they tend to establish quite quickly. Uh, but the sphagnum is a slower is a slower thing to establish, really. Um, and it, it is something that we have to kind of keep an eye on. We can't just sort of go, well, right, it's planted, go ahead and leave it. And as I say, we've got a, uh, we have a, a long term monitoring program that goes back to all the areas we've worked in and looks at the vegetation, keeps a, a, a record of everything that's growing, everything that's not growing, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't work, because it's it's often not really a one size all fits all solution you have to kind of sort of tailor it depending on where you're going and what the what the place is that you're working on really I can imagine that's quite a crucial stage actually going back to check that what you think is going to happen does happen because the last thing you'd want to do is implement a process that the 10 years down the track and go oh hang on a minute no we should have done it differently <laughs> yeah yeah definitely over the course of of the life of Morse for the future so since 2003 the 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 methods we've used have definitely changed over that time. I think to begin with, sphagnum wasn't so much our main focus that we were using other other plants instead. But gradually, 
by trial and not really trial and error because I think something's worked to some degree but by trying different things we've realized that that, that is the most effective way long term that's going to really help and it also helps to kind of create what you also want is to create a, a a, a landscape where lots of different species can can flourish. I think that's maybe one of the issues we've had in the past with some of the things we've tried is that they end up dominating too much. And so you get one species that takes over and other things don't flourish. Whereas if you've got a range of different different plants growing, then that will help to encourage the wildlife to return, which obviously will help to for the regeneration of those areas as well. And are you at the point where you can see from the ones that you started off with that they're now the biodiversity has changed because of the of, of planting? Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, as an example, up on up on Kinder itself, where we've done a lot of work, we've been working with the Derbyshire Bat Group, who. Um, as the name would suggest, they do sort of surveys and, and of, of what how bat species are, are doing around the county. And over the last couple of years, they've discovered bat species up on the top of Kinder, which they've never ever found before. I mean, they've just never been up there before because there was no, there wasn't the insect life for the for the bats to feed on, so they just didn't go to those areas. Whereas now they're finding them there. So I think that's a, a very clear image really of of how of of how things are changing up there yeah i imagine that's a real reward to be able to see the benefit of well, just more life <laughs> coming to the moor that must be very definitely very satisfying how do you get to how do you get people to be involved in that whole planting process is are they all done by employers or do you get volunteers we mainly it's done by either um the, the the core team for for most of the future themselves or by contractors we tend okay we do use volunteers but that tends to be more for the monitoring work than for the actual planting um so we tend to use contractors for the for the planting work but certainly with the monitoring work we do because it's such a, a long-term project so in terms of as i was saying about before about the vegetation monitoring so from like now from september till december every year every week they every thursday they go out and they put down like a what we call a quadrat so a, a kind of frame that shows a that gives a certain shape and they'll sit there within that and go okay there's this this grass there's this thing growing there's this thing keep a note of that and then each week they'll go back and this is an ongoing thing that's been going for a long time now years and years and years they've been doing this it's a huge data set that they now have to draw to fall back on and the other thing that they they do regularly as well is what we call dip wells which is a way of checking how wet the the soil is and how deep the water table goes and as with all these things they're quite low tech really the stuff they use so it's this is like what basically it's like a a plastic tube and a ruler and they blow down the tube and when they can hear bubbles forming they know that they've hit the water Um, and then they've got the ruler there obviously to see how low down that is Um, so it's it's quite low tech but it's a very clear way of showing um, how the water table is is developing and how wet the soil is is because that's as i say is one of the central things that we want to do is to keep is to keep those areas wet yeah and another thing that i forgot to mention earlier that we do as part of the the work that we do in terms of restoration and if you're ever out on the moors in the peat district you might well see this is that where the bare peat has become particularly bad when the rains falls when the rain falls on it often it kind of cuts gullies out into it so because there's nothing to hold it there it cuts these channels 
down sort of steep sided channels through that. Um, and so what we do in those places is that we put in what we call gully blocks, which are basically little dams at various points sort of through these gullies. And those will be made of wood or uh, stone or peat. And we put those in and they, they don't stop the water completely. They're made to be leaky. But they do, again, it's that thing of slowing the flow of the water. And initially, when you first go in, you will you will notice them because you go, oh, look, there's a big plank of wood stuck in there or whatever it is. But gradually over time, because of the silting process of the peat that's being washed down, they gradually sort of become part of the environment. and You don't really notice them anymore. And they help to create pools of water up on the moors, which for starters, keep things wet. But again, encourage insect species to then return to those areas as well. So on that point about uh, the emphasis of keeping the whole of that landscape wet, yeah, we've talked about peatlands. Where does the term bog come in? How does that differ, or is it is it one and the same? Yeah, they're all kind of this. Yeah, so they, to some extent, they are sort of interrelated words for the same thing, really. Yeah, I mean, we we certainly like to use the word bog, um, and we use it a lot in our communications work. Um, we have a we have a vehicle that we drive around to various events we call the bogtastic van so yeah that to some extent i think there's some quote about that if you get your feet wet it's this and if you get kind of end up up to your up to your waist it's this or something like that it's sort of to have what, i can't quite remember what they are and i don't think it's terribly scientific it's probably just sort of old country law as to as to what constitutes a, a bog and what constitutes um, a marsh or whatever different sorts of things but um we're just we're describing the land in a slightly just just different way but all effectively exactly. meaning the same thing so you, right, you, yeah. you you mentioned the bogtastic van there so what mm. what's the premise behind that what's it trying to do well one of the things we've realized as i say we, there are sort of three strands to what most of the future does and one of them obviously is the restoration work itself one is the science and monitoring work but the third strand is engagement and talking to the general public about the work that we do because i think one of the things that we've realized most strongly is that in a way it doesn't matter how much work we do in terms of restoration if that restoration ends up being damaged again because people need to understand to some extent that the importance of this landscape and why we're doing the work that we do. And, and one of the biggest challenges in some respects is wildfire, particularly over the last number of years. You know, you'll have there's been plenty of stuff in the news about, about this, um, where you know fires start on the moors and where you know huge amounts of damage is caused, both to existing moorland, but also to potentially to work that we've done as well so it yeah it's, it's kind of crucial to get the, the message out there about how important it is in terms of because and, and I think this is even more so since Covid because a lot more people discovered the idea of going out onto the moors going for a walk which is brilliant but in a sense they also have to understand why this these areas are important they're not just a pretty place but actually they have a great deal of value particularly in terms of of, of carbon storage um, that would be damaged otherwise and and one of the the, the the facets of peat that has to be kind of kept an eye on is of course dry peat will burn because as you know in some countries they used as fuel as we know and things so it, it's something you have to be very very careful about because if if fire gets into that peat layer it will often go sort of um 
underground pop up somewhere else makes it very hard to put it out so which is why often when when wildfires do start on the moors they can go for days because they're a huge challenge for the fire services to put out so as i say alongside the the work that we do in terms of of the actual restoration side the the, the communication side is I, I think really crucial i think it's also important just that the people sort of understand in a way because where the money's going you know we're spending a lot of money on doing this work and it's really important that people understand that's why we're doing it and so i think yeah it's and, and it's very it's very fulfilling to to sort of spread that message really to people and sort of tell them all about it and is your experience quite positive when when people suddenly realize uh, mm. what the landscape is and what it could look like is are they are people buying into the fact that they it's, it's a oh. whole lot nicer to go go up there and, and visit Definitely, definitely. I mean, it's it, the, you know, when we when we speak to people, when we when we're out and about, people are always really, really enthusiastic about what we do. And I think you know, because often people will have know a bit of the story. They'll have you know they'll have gone up there themselves, so they know they've seen things, but they probably don't know what they're there for or why they're there. And they might, and some people remember. Well, I remember it used to be like this when it was just you know black peat, and now it's nice and and it's got. Um, plants growing up but other people may have only seen it in its recent form and go oh was it ever like this so sometimes just the thing of we've got some very vivid images that kind of the pictures that we show and it's, and it's that thing of going well actually that's what it used to look like and that's what it looks like now you know in a relatively short space of time and uh you know it really you know, brings people up short so and, uh, yeah people are very very responsive to it so yeah and, and as i was saying we the, the yes the bogtastic van which is our kind of flagship vehicle as it were that we take round to events and to beauty spots and things where people gather to be able to show people what we do and it's a it's a it's a vehicle that we take around and it has uh when you go inside it's got like a, a bouncy bog floor to sort of replicate the feeling of being on the moors as a film that gets shown with all the kind of sights and sounds you're going to get out on the moors uh there's a little video game for the children to play about saving lizzie the lizard's um habitat and various demonstrations and things that we do outside to talk to people but it's really more than anything else it's about a, about conversation it's about talking to people yeah i mean it sounds invaluable to, it's that connecting people with their surroundings isn't it and see, seeing it through different eyes and valuing it because the more people value nature the more they're likely to want to protect it aren't they so absolutely yeah I think that's um, that's a really good van <laughs> yeah. what's the what's the ambitions now you're sort of uh, a fair way down the road for the organization what what are the future sort of goals in terms of getting as uh, much restoration as possible yeah i mean we're still the work is still to be done it's still continuing i think nowadays certainly in the area we're in there's less of the big expanses of of bear peat that we would have seen 20 years ago that you know that certainly has improved enormously but there's still pockets that need to be kept an eye on there's bits that need need doing so it's it's still an ongoing process and i think even more so the the monitoring side of that as it's you know growing back in is even more important in a way of keeping an eye on it and seeing what's happening and if if any other work needs to be done to to bring it up to speed in different places so it's it's a continuing process the other thing that we've become part of in the last few years is that we're sort of now part of an initiative called the great north bog 
Um, so we're because we're not the only organization that does this kind of work. There are different organizations well, all over the country, but specifically in the north of England, doing similar things to what we do. And, and we've all kind of banded together in this, this one thing, the Great North Bog, so that we can kind of pool our resources in terms of um, fundraising, in terms of publicity and things like that, so that we can, because otherwise we're all kind of trying to pull in, you know, in different directions, but for the, with the same same outcome at the end of the day so um so that thing of working together as a team much more so what we've done already is already on a on a a landscape scale but by working closely with these other organizations as well it does help to to increase that that reach really and do you find that you although that they might be in different areas that you can learn off each other in terms of what they're how they're doing and what's worked for them might work for you that sort of thing definitely definitely i mean everybody's they're all slightly different in terms of how they do things i think the, the specific issues that we have in our area in terms of the the historical pollution and stuff are you know much worse than in in some places but definitely there's always um you know, it's very useful to compare notes and to find out what other people have been doing, what works for them, what works for us, and have that knowledge sharing. I think it's 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 always really important. For sure. And and just to clarify, because um, throughout this sort of narrative, this uh, the um, the moorlands that you're you're looking after and restoring, the main issue sounds like it's been pollution. Whereas, mm-hmm. is it in some areas that there's been the issue of people? using peat for compost that sort of other way that it's been degraded that that would have been a case in some areas it doesn't really it's not really an issue where we are it's not it's um, sort of um, peat farming hasn't really been an issue in this area probably it was just it was too hard to get to in some respects it's certainly a, you know something that has become you know more of a hot topic elsewhere particularly sort of in ireland and north scotland and places like that where traditionally you know they were cutting peat either for for fuel or for using in in compost but i mean that's changing anyway in the sense that there's a there's a new law i think come in that means that for domestic use all compost has to be peat free by 2025 i think so so it is a gradual change in that respect but it's it's not it's not specifically as something that was has been an issue in this area okay so it sounds like a very positive story because of the way that you've come into this uh, this area have you remained optimistic what are your thoughts and feelings about the future of moorlands yeah no absolutely i certainly have remained um, optimistic yeah i think there will always be challenges to 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 the work that we do because i think and i think it probably more challenges in some respects the, the the less obvious the work becomes because i think when it was like massive great areas in a way that's easier to go look at that when it becomes a bit harder to quantify that that makes it more challenging however i think the message about the importance of peat has become much more obvious than it has than it used to be i think there was a one stage where it was very much oh well climate change is a problem so you need to go and plant trees which is fine and of course people need to go and plant trees but it's about but in a way what it's about is about looking at where do we already have this resource and this resource of, of a of a carbon store in our peat bogs and if we can preserve that rather than having to put new things in which might take a long time to grow and fulfill their potential if we can preserve what's already there i think that's absolutely crucial and i think there's definitely much more of a sense of recognition of that even 
even in the short time I've been doing it, than there than there was. I think that's a really important point you make that there needs to be more than one way into looking at these very intractable, complex problems that we currently face in the environment um, with yeah. climate change and biodiversity. And peatlands and moorlands, they have so much to offer us in, in terms of protecting our environment. It seems like an absolute no-brainer to, to carry on with that restoration work. It's, it seems such a good project. Definitely. And I, and I think the other thing is as well is that you know, the whole point of being a partnership is that you know, we work with different people with different viewpoints on different subjects. And, and I think that shows in a way a way forward because it's very easy to become very polarised that this is the right way to do it or this is the wrong way to do it or however it may be. Whereas I think we because we tend to take a kind of middle ground and we you know we've taken ideas from lots of different people and lots of different viewpoints it means that you can try and create dialogue as well and that's partly as well what what i do with the engagement side of things is creating sometimes dialogue between quite different groups of people but actually in the end hopefully finding a common purpose and moving forward as part of that Oh, that is absolutely key, isn't it? And the, the cap collaboration required where people are coming at it from different angles, but knowing that you've got a kind of common goal, which is to project the environment, it's, it's so valuable. It's been fascinating hearing your personal story and the work of the Morelands for the Future. It's, it's a really positive organisation and a collaborative effort. So it's a, thank you very much for your time and sharing that very, very exceptionally valuable work today. Thank you. Thank you. Like many of our landscapes, moorlands are in a poor state and it struck me from this conversation that we've got used to it. In chatting to Robbie, I was able to reimagine these areas covered in moss, plants and teeming with life. There are so many reasons to invest in restoration, from ensuring the peat remains a carbon sink, to assisting in natural flood management and generating biodiversity. It was fascinating to hear the details of restoration work and the effort going into this labour-intensive but super valuable activity. Again, collaboration is crucial to attacking our environmental crises head-on. And with a common goal, people are truly unstoppable. Very inspiring. To find out more about Moorlands for the Future and the Bogtastic Van, take a look at the show notes. I'd like to thank Andy Shaw for audio editing, Jeremy Jones for providing the music, and to you for listening. Don't forget you can follow the podcast to get automatic access to each new episode. And it would be lovely if you could rate, review, and share it too. It really helps. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>